Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Our next guest, Maya Salovitz, is an author most recently of Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction, the first history of the movement aimed at focusing drug policy on minimizing harms and not highs, her words. Her previous New York Times bestseller was called Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction. It won the 2018 Media Award from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, Ms. Salovitz is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She's written for many, many major publications and she wrote a piece on april 24th of this year called this is what neuroscientists and philosophers understand about addiction coming out of her own experience and her own research maya salovitz welcome to the lisa wexa show today hi hello hi thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure maya so let me begin with you because obviously you have a very compelling first person account you yourself were addicted to both cocaine and heroin is that right yeah, yeah, that was um that was unfortunately true um in the uh late 80s. And you say you were facing a 15 year to life sentence, but your parents bailed you out and held a family meeting. Um one of the questions I had from a listener who knew that you were coming on today was right away whether or not did you serve any time in jail? I didn't and that is absolutely down to the fact that I was like a middle class white Columbia student. <laughs> Um, and I have spent the rest of my career trying to fight against unjust drug laws, um, in part because of what I saw when I was, I had to like, um, the judge ended up, um, once I got in recovery, the judge just saw that I was not like, um, this scary 80 pound person with track marks anymore. Um, and that I was getting my life back on track and, you know, the way they do these things, they drag out these court cases. Um, so by the time it finally got, um, decided I was four or five years in recovery. I was actually working as a producer for Charlie Rose. Um, and, um, the judge basically decided to dismiss the case, um, in the interest of justice, which was very, very, very rare. And I recognize that I'm extraordinarily lucky, um, for that to have happened because so many people, um, were not that lucky and they did not, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, the, the criminal legal system will give people, you know, a chance 
And because addiction tends to be a chronic thing and people relapse as part of their learning process, um, that often means that they don't get recovery because they just get sent to jail for long periods of time. Um, so, um, so yeah, so my story is really unusual in that. And I have been, you know, basically uh, spending the rest of my life trying to make sure that we do understand addiction and, and treat it in a way that is actually likely to be effective. You know, what's really interesting, I, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I'm just going to pinpoint a little bit about what you just said, because we have a constitutional right to a speedy trial. And the truth of the matter is most of the time that speedy trial is essential because it actually helps the accused. The evidence is fresher. People's memories are fresher um, for all kinds of reasons, including the uncertainty of the outcome itself. The right to a speedy trial typically is yeah. hand in hand with justice. But it's very interesting what you should say about the fact that these cases are dragged on because it is true that with drug cases or with certain um, criminal defense attorneys, their strategy, depending upon right what the person is accused of, but for drug offenses, the reason it's a valuable strategy is because a judge can then look at somebody and see, well, X amount of time has actually passed since what you were accused of doing. Are you, are a, are you a repeat offender or are you serious about getting well? Exactly. And I mean, I was just very lucky. Um, bizarrely enough, I got arrested by police in um, Nassau County on, well, they came into Manhattan and raided my apartment. Um, so part of the reason for the long delay was that um, they knew they didn't have jurisdiction. So they waited a year to indict me and then they moved the case to Manhattan. Um, so oh. it was it wow. was this very weird, complicated case from they didn't arrest my boyfriend who was there. I mean, it was just a very strange case in the first place. Um, and so um, so that was like part of it. But, yeah, the um, I remember like repeatedly, you know, waiving the right to speedy trial um, because exactly what you said, my lawyer felt that we would have time to, you know, show her that I had, um, you know, gotten my life together. And I was just lucky that during nothing happened during that year before I got indicted, um, when I was still very much actively using um, to, to, yeah, to bring that to the attention of the legal system. Um, so I was just lucky in a million ways. And, and this is also why I, why I used that example, because that was like when I went and used those drugs, like immediately after, you know, I had spent three days in, in jail before I got bailed out immediately after like the worst experience of my life related to drugs. Um, and then I went and did them. I mean, it was just like, you know, um, I just it was incredibly stupid. And I was just like, how did I go from like a Columbia College student to somebody who um, did this? Um, and I was trying to just, you know, figure out what happened. And that's why I've actually always been interested in the question of like, how does addiction affect our ability to make choices? And obviously, in that situation, my uh, ability was clearly impaired. But what happened over time was as I learned to recover and learned to deal with the uh, psychological issues I'd been trying to manage with the drugs, um, I got more and more able to make choices and good choices. I mean, I was always making choices, but some of them were pretty awful. Um, so, um, you know, it was... Um, 
I was just, I feel very extremely lucky that, you know, I didn't go to prison for 15 years and that also that we finally reformed the Rockefeller laws um, so that, um, you know, a person with a first um, drug offense doesn't do more time than a murderer. Right. We're chatting with Maya Salovitz, who wrote a guest opinion piece in the New York Times. This is the paragraph that really caught my attention, Maya. I'm going to read it. I want our audience to hear it. And then I, I really want you to reflect on this. You wrote claims that people with addiction are unable to control themselves are belied by basic facts. Few of us inject drugs in front of the police, which means that most are capable of delaying use. Addicted people often make complicated plans over days and months to obtain drugs and hide use from others, again indicating purposeful activity. Those given the option will use clean needles. Moreover, small rewards for drug-free urine tests used in a treatment called contingency management are quite successful at helping people quit, which couldn't be possible if addiction obliterated choice. And I just, I just thought that was rather brilliant because we, those of us who are not addicted, and that would be me, I'm very grateful that I don't really have an addictive brain. Every now and then I can get in the throes of, of craving chocolate, but then, when I decide <laughs> to, but then when I decide, Maya, to switch it off, I won't have chocolate for months at a time. And it's literally like a switch. And I can turn it off when I want to. Yeah. So, um, and so my point is, and I'm grateful for that. I acknowledge that my brain thankfully for me, has not been susceptible to these things. On the other hand, I will tell you, I've never been drawn to trying them. I'm very, very afraid of messing with my brain, and I've never even been high. So there it is. So I don't know if I have that addictive brain because I've never opened up that particular Pandora's box. But Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's really an interesting thing because, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was super scared of being out of control. Mm -hmm. Um, But what ended up happening was that I was so lonely and so isolated and so depressed um, that um, I got desperate and I got interested in substances because I knew they could alter your consciousness Um, and mine definitely needed some altering. I really wonder what would have happened if I had actually, you know, back then they really didn't know, but if I had actually had access to, you know, treatment for the depression um, and social skills training for the um, autism spectrum, um, you know, I would have probably had a very different life course. Um, I feel, you know, the, it's always been, you know, the, of course, there's obviously a question whether any of us have free will, but I think I decided I would bracket that in writing this article yeah. because otherwise it would not yeah. fit in 1,200 words. <laughs> um, but um, the, um, you know, I always envisioned it like there was a choice, but I couldn't see it. And that's why I use that metaphor later in the piece about how, like, if you're trapped in a room and there's an escape route hidden under the floor that you don't know about, you are just as trapped as if there wasn't one. Sure, and until you learn, you know, and I mean, we all over time have experiences of like learning to control things that we first couldn't control going back to, you know, when we we're babies. Right. Um, and so it's that is the complexity of it. It's not like you have zero free will or you're a zombie. It's that it's impaired and it's constricted and it's constrained by both your own ability to make better choices and the choices that are available to you 
like physically actually available to you. I mean, I was just lucky that I came from a um, family that had resources. Um, And, you know, a lot of people um, don't, and they don't have the resources to recover. Um, So again, I feel very strongly that we need to make sure that more people have access to that and that we're not just being like, oh, these are bad, horrible, selfish people um, who just want to put their own personal pleasure in front of like everything else like that is not what's going on there I mean there are jerks who have addiction and are like that and there are jerks in the rest of the world that are like that um but um for the most part it is about people just trying to be okay Mm -hmm. um and if you give people a pathway that they can see to being okay nobody wants like I mean shooting up like 40 times a day. I like weighed 80 pounds. I looked like, you know, I had some kind of terminal illness, um, which in some sense I did, Um, you know, and um, I went from that. How did you survive that kind of physically? How did you survive that kind of addiction? I don't even know. I mean, like I lived on like like uh, this weird thing called this um, thing they had in Queens that was uh, Boston cream pie, which is delicious. And that was basically all I ate. But then I just did drugs. I mean, it was kind of, yeah, it was astonishing. I wasn't malnourished. Um, But um, at a certain point, I realized that um, I needed help and that this was, you know, and it was way after I should have realized it. Obviously, I should have realized it the day I got arrested. Um, but um, when I did realize that, um, I went to court. I was actually in withdrawal. I told the judge that I am going to get um, treatment. My parents got me into treatment. Um, and then, you know, I've been in recovery since then. Um, but um, For all that time since the 80s? Uh, yeah. Wow. Maya, um, stay right there. We're going to have to go sure. to a commercial. We're going to be right back. Uh, stay with us. I'm going to ask Maya Salovitz a little bit more about her addiction, and we're going to go into some stats that are surprising about who the people are that become addicts. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And welcome back to the show. We're chatting with Maya Salovitz who is a best-selling New York Times author, and she is a former addict herself, and she wrote a New York Times guest essay called This is What Neuroscientists and Philosophers Understand About Addiction. So one of the things, this is I thought was another important piece, Maya, is you wrote this. Most people who try drugs don't get addicted, even to opioids or methamphetamine, which suggests that factors other than simply being exposed to a drug can contribute to addiction. 
And this one really grabbed me. You said the majority of people who do get hooked have other psychiatric disorders, traumatic childhoods, or both, but only 7% report no history of mental illness at all. So an overwhelming 93% report some kind of mental illness. Obviously, that can be depression as well as bipolar, something like that, or schizophrenia. Nearly 75% of women with heroin addiction were sexually abused as children. And most people with any type of addiction have suffered at least one and often many forms of childhood trauma. Um, and so, you yeah. know, that, that's just, that's worth a pause, don't you think, Maya? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's just like for so long we were, um, you know, the idea was we just have to punish these people. They're bad people. Um, and, you know, the irony there is that addiction is defined by compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. So by definition, punishment is not going to work. Um, and so, um, you know, but so basically what we're doing is we're, we're kicking these poor people who are already down. Um, you know, and that's not to say that everybody with addiction is a lovely person. Um, it's just that the, um, you know, overwhelmingly, they are trying to um, self-medicate um, some kind of um, mental illness or trauma. And what's really important to know here is that a predisposition to mental illness, the thing that turns that into an actual mental illness is often a traumatic stress. Um, so it's like you could have a kid who is a, has a tendency to depression, but everything goes well, they don't have a trauma, um, they are surrounded by people who teach them how to cope, and they don't ever develop that. Um, whereas you could have another kid who has that same tendency, and then their mom dies, and then, um, you know, they have, um, they get sexually abused or something, um, you, you know, you end up seeing that depression manifest itself. Um, and that person may often turn to substances, you know, just to feel okay. Maya, do you think, since you've given a lot of thought to public policy, and we only have a couple of minutes, do you think that we should have um, places where people can freely shoot up drugs? Yes. Um, I think that um, the thing about the supervised consumption sites is that what people don't get is it's not like you go there and everybody's like, yay, you're shooting up, this is fabulous. It's more that what happens is, People who are on the street who are injecting publicly are, tend to be homeless, severely traumatized, repeatedly traumatized, mentally ill, um, and they go to this place and they're accepted exactly as they are. And once you get accepted for being who you are instead of you have to be this to be a good person, you have to be that to be okay, you have to be this to have a friend, when people accept you exactly as you are is when you can begin to make changes. And oftentimes, um, these places, it's the whole philosophy of harm reduction, um, the idea is we meet you where you are, we don't leave you there, we help you move towards positive change. Do you, think that, so, do you think that the selling of these drugs in any amount, and, for, in, and I'm talking you know, wholesale use, retail use, whatever, do you think the selling of illegal drugs like heroin and cocaine should be legal? It depends on the on the substance, um, and it depends on how you do it. Um, prohibition clearly isn't working, um, but you really don't want Philip Morris fentanyl either, right? Mm. Uh, so, and they would be the first to come in, wouldn't they? 
They right. You know what would. I mean? Like that, that, yes. this, that's not a good idea. Um, so you need to find a pathway for each substance between the harms of a black market um, and the um, harms of the substance. And one of the ways they do this, for example, in Switzerland is, is they prescribe heroin to people who are addicted. Um, and this has actually reduced the market there because oftentimes people who are addicted are selling the drugs to support their addiction, as I was. Um, and so when you reduce the number of those dealers, you're reducing the number of, of um, new users often. Um, and then, you know, when people start getting prescribed heroin, what's also really interesting is you think, oh, they're prescribed heroin. They're never going to want to quit. They got exactly what they want. It's all good. But if you've ever had the experience of getting exactly what you want, you discover rapidly that it doesn't fix you. Like your book is a bestseller. You think my life is going to be perfect. You know, no, I'm still me. I still have to deal with myself. And this is what happens with heroin prescribing. So people who are actually prescribed are more likely to reconnect with their family, get a job, um, do all the things that we want them to do. Maya, um, yes, I thank you, you very go. much. We're going to have to have you back on because I'm loving chatting with you. Um, thank you very much for writing this op-ed piece. Thank you for your candor and your um, speaking out. And um, Thank you I'm, as well. I'm so um, pleased for you that notwithstanding being you and I'm me and the world that we live in, that you really have accomplished so much. You've stayed sober all these years. Um, I'm really happy for you, Maya. Thank you so much. Likewise. <laughs> Um, Maya Salovitz on the Lisa Wexler Show. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com.